They say from little things, big things grow. That particular saying rings true for the Bo Morris Footy Club. In the early 1960s, Bo Morris was a largely undeveloped area in Victoria and the inaugural committee meeting was mainly attended by ex-servicemen who had moved into the area with young families after the war. The club commenced in 1963 with three junior sides and one senior side and in that same year the South East Suburban Footy League began. After sustained success and other factors in the club's first 30 years, they opted for a move to the VAFA in 1995 where they have since cemented their place within our competition. It took just one season for the Sharks to make their mark on the amateur competition with an E-section flag in their very first year and they've since worked their way up the chain as one of the biggest district clubs in the land. The foundations have been laid and the pillars are in place as the Bow Morris Footy Club and its passionate community continues to strive for continued success in the depths of Shark Park. Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of the Club in Focus podcast. We are building up to the 2021 pre-season. Feels good to say that, which means we're not far away from footy returning. Before that though, we've got another club to take a look at, one of our favourites in the Amos. Today we're looking at the Bo Morris Sharks, a club that started back in 1962, didn't join the Amos until 1995 and we will tell you all about that throughout the next hour and a half. My name's Joe Pignataro. It wouldn't be possible without the help and support of Mequacare, a not-for-profit organisation who have been around since 1959 and have helped us throughout this year bring these podcasts to you. And one man who's helped me alongside me in the co-host chair via Zoom, he's the best-looking man in the competition. He's still got the beard, and I don't know if he did Movember or not, but he's still got some sort of mo as well. His name's Nick Armistead, and we found him after celebrating another Richmond flag. Hello, Nico. Hello, Joseph. Great to be here. It's been a few weeks since we've done a Clubs in Focus podcast. I'm very <laughs> excited. And um, lo and behold, as you just said, uh, we, we do meet via Zoom and we do these. And your little videos popped up as I've got on today. And you are wearing the tightest Collingwood singlet I have ever seen. You want to talk about good looking, the guns that are coming out of your screen right now, mate. You are in top shape. Clearly, isolation hasn't been too bad for you mate but I am again really looking forward to this one as you said they've been around for a long time not too long in the VAFA Bo Morris since 95 but they've had some serious success since they have come in absolutely looking forward to delving into it we've got a plethora of guests including who I'm going to coin the godfather of the Bo Morris Sharks very shortly Ron Nicholson he's been there since day one in fact, Nico, when they ran out on their first day, he was a member of the under-15 side, so he's going to join us shortly. He's now these days the club historian, and he documents all of it on the Bo Morris website. Guy McKenna's the current coach. He's a two-time premiership player with the Eagles. He's going to join us a little later on. Jason Mifsud is the club's longest-serving coach. Of course, a the 2010 flag. He was the coach in that year, and I know you're so very excited to talk to him about that particular game and that particular season for Bo Morris. What about this for history, Nico? 
Uh, under 13s, 1963 at 9.30, the first time a Bo Morris team runs out to play. Andy Sheldrake is the man who leads them out in the under 13s. We found him, and he's going to join us. And in the modern day, as so many of our clubs have done, they've created a women's team, and they've got their own. We're going to chat to Alan Wood, who is the co-captain of the Bo Morris Sharks. A bubbly character, I'm told, and a mad Richmond fan, which I'm not interested in asking her <laughs> about. So we'll leave it there, Nico. But there is something we've done in these podcasts throughout the more recent ones. We've gone back in the history books uh, to the year that they were inaugural and they incepted. Uh, in 1995, they came into our competition, but you don't want to do 1995. You yeah. want to go further back to 1962. So what have you got for me? from that year before I ask you about your memories of meeting the Beaumaris Sharks when you went out there for the first time. Yeah, of course. Their first game, as you said, was in 1963. But the idea of Beaumaris, <laughs> from those involved, the return servicemen, was in 1962. And I know I've chosen 62 over 95. Given the ordinary uh, dot points that I've brought up for 62, <laughs> maybe I should have gone with 95. 1962. When the Beaumaris Sharks were being created for the very first time, Marilyn Monroe sang the very famous rendition of Happy Birthday to JFK. You would have heard that, Joseph. Spider-Man, the worst Marvel (laughs) character in history, was created. For all of our uh, Kmart fans out there, the first time Kmart was established in 1962, absolutely. And also... This is just as big as Kmart. Salt and vinegar chips were first created back in 62. From a sporting perspective, Rod Labor was at the absolute height of his powers. He won the Grand Slam in 62, claiming victory in the Australian Open, the French, the US Open and Wimbledon. And from an AFL side of things, Essendon won their 11th flag, defeating Carlton by 32 points. Disappointingly, not Collingwood, because that (laughs) seems to be the ongoing sort of thing when I read these out. Collingwood losing another flag, Joey. (laughs) Yes, it is. I'm thankful you didn't pick out any other season. Although, even if you did 95, Collingwood didn't lose that one. I know Richmond made the final series that year and didn't get to the grand final. I don't. Maybe that's why you didn't want to bring it up. But Nico, back in 1962, they created their footy club. Um, Roddy Nicholson's going to tell us all about that. They coined the mantra "humble in victory, gracious in defeat." Back then, and they've just built on and on and on. If you want some fascinating articles, BoMorrisFC.com.au. They've got newspaper clippings from the early 60s, a photo of the 1965 Premiership team. So if you are a historian, there's some fascinating things out there. But for my sake, Nico, I want to find out what you found the first time you went out to Bo Morris when you joined the Ammos. I think from what you've told me, it was an arch rival type game and it was pretty entertaining. It was. It was a fantastic. It was a Bayside battle. I'm not sure, quite sure what they do call it, but against some Beards, Mentone and Tigers. Both sides of that say. So I joined in 2015. So that would have been 20 start of 2016 when I went out and watched those two. And being a Mafra boy, yes. you know I'm a big fan of rivalries. And we've gone over quite a few in this podcast series. West Brunswick had a big one where they got in a brawl oh. and they weren't even playing. I mean, they're the sorts of rivalries I like to hear about. And out of Banksy Reserve this weekend, it was a big one 
against the Tigers and there were fights, there were superlatives being thrown from over the fence between the two supporters. The umpire was copping it left, right and centre. It was just fantastic local football. <laughs> and I suppose probably the best part about it, it was a very close game. I think Bowie got up in the end. I can't really remember the scoreline, but it was a tight game. Emotions were high and it was one of the best experiences I've had out of the back of ground. Right, so you're going back to the rivals. I'm looking forward to asking a couple of our uh, guests about their rivals, including um, Alan Woods, about the women's side of things, whether they've inherited the rivalries that the men's sides have got. I'm also looking forward to chatting to Guy McKenna, um, one man who, of course, played his AFL career in the blue and gold. He's now coaching Bo Morris in the blue and gold, and the fact that he had Stephen Milne at his disposal when he first came down. Of course, you know my theories and thoughts on Club jumpers. Well, Bo Morris is one of those clubs that feature in my spiel that they're allowed to wear the same colours and almost the identical strip as De La Salle and of Williamstown, but St Bernard's can't wear their old Carey jumper. And I know the sash goes the other way, but it may <laughs> as well be the same bloody jumper. So I'm going to find out at some point throughout this podcast why that is and how that's come to be. What about for yourself? Is there one thing that sticks out outside of the rivalries? Is it is it Jason Mifsud and the 2010 flag? It is. That's a big one for me. Now, in 2010, like they won that flag by one point against Caulfield Grammarians, Stephen Lawrence's Caulfield Grammarians, but they'd had a, quite a few close tussles in the lead into that. I think seven of their games were decided by single digits throughout oh. the season. So they knew how to win the close ones. But I've also found a little fun fact about Ooh. Jason and his time as a player. All right. He wasn't exactly playing for Bowie. He didn't play for Bowie. He only coached, but... When he was playing elsewhere in the country, he had a very, very good game one day. I suggest it might be upwards of 25 goals in the one game. What? For the league record. For the team? For the team? 25? For him. What? And there is also a little story about another grand final whereby I've been told he told all the rest of the forwards to get out in the second half because they were down, they were losing. Get out, push him up to the wing. He went and kicked eight goals in the second half what? and they won that game by less than a kick. Oh, real Pagan's Paddock stuff before it was <laughs> Pagan's Paddock. Jason Mifsud sounds like a star. So you're telling me he's a goal-kicking machine, rivals the likes of Tony Modra, Tony Lockett and Jason Dunstall. Very much so. Much so. And he knew about it too. He, was, he From what I'm told, he didn't want to share that forward 50. He's just like, we need to get the job done here. Get out and leave it to me. All right. Well, let's not dilly-dally much longer. Jason Mifsud isn't far away, as is Andy Sheldrake, Guy McKenna and Alan Woods. But we're going to start with the godfather of the Bo Morris Sharks, Ron Nicholson. He is about to join us. Well, Nico, let's not uh, continue on with our dribble. Let's have a big chat with, I think, this man, we can call him the godfather of the Bo Morris Footy Club. He's been there since day one, a life member of the footy club, and he's done just about all you can do at the Bo Morris Sharks. His name is Ron Nicholson, and he joins us now. Hello, Ron. Hello, Joey. Hello, Nick. Thanks for joining us, Ron. Can we go back to the very, very start? Now, we're, of course, the Amos Club in focus, and we can talk about Bo Morris joining our competition in the mid-90s, but Bo Morris has been around since 1962. How did you get involved with the Bo Morris Footy Club back in day one? Okay, well, look, the history of the club ties in a little bit of uh, the history of the area, the Bo Morris itself, and, uh, of course, even wider 
Australia having gone through the Second World War because just before the war, Dunlop, the big American company, bought uh, 450 acres of land within the suburb of what is now Beaumaris and planned an industrial park, which would have been a tragedy. What happened is the war started and after the war, Melbourne needed residential land and those plans were shelved and Dunlop auctioned the uh, the 450 acres uh, into several hundred housing lots and they gave uh, special consideration for returned servicemen. So the area was still pretty uh, bushy and untamed. On the beach, there were lots of sporting identities who were attracted to that type of lifestyle, artists, architects, good golf clubs nearby. And they had a big auction in 1951 where they sold several hundred uh, housing lots and a lot of returned servicemen were amongst the purchasers, my my family included. My father bought a, a block at that auction for £200 wow. and uh, rang his father in Ballarat, who was a publican, and said, we've just bought a place, a block of land by the sea and uh, paid £200. And his dad said, why didn't you buy two? And that was very prescient because it's such a lovely area. That's an absolute steal, Ronnie. So so through my research, I've been told there was a, a couple of significant VFL alumni in the Beaumaris area. Is that fact, Ronnie? There were people like Brian Gleeson, uh, the 1957 Brownlow medalist, and Neil Roberts, the 58 Brownlow medalist. They lived in the area. Right. And can you explain to us what the reasoning was behind setting up a local district footy club in the area of Beaumaris? There were tennis clubs. Yacht Club, Motor Yacht Squadron. So all sports were well catered for, except as the youngsters grew up and the, um, all these servicemen created the Beaumaris RSL sub-branch, very vibrant club, very social. And the young boys in the area started growing up. There was no local footy club. We were surrounded by federal league clubs in Blackrock, Cheltenham, Mentone, etc. But they decided to roll up their sleeves and get going and, Two public meetings at the RSL in 62 saw the club formed and straight away we're in 1963, 14 were uh, entered into the new South East Suburban Footy League, uh, a senior team, an under-17, under-15, under-13. That's how the club started. Ronnie, these days when we go out to some of the VAFA grounds, we see new change rooms being built, clubs being given government grants to upgrade theirs. What were the facilities like back in the early 60s? Because I know right now they are as good as they get in the BAFA. Uh, they built a very tiny club room that uh, you could only fit 20 players, a coach and a training bench into the rooms. There was no social area. There was no fence. There were no lighting. There was no canteen. So it was very <laughs> primitive and basic conditions, but everyone loved it. It was a and and uh, they're a great bunch of people and they had these principles of um, they're very fair, uh, respect, were determined to create a family club and inclusion. They're great with having women involved with the club on subcommittees, etc. So they set the, um, the tone of the club and the culture and we really respect the foundation they gave. And we kicked off in... Uh, 1963 on the 20th of April when four teams played. I ran out in the under-15. Andy Sheldrake was the first guy to run out at Bowie as captain of the under-13s at 9.45. And uh, and it just kicked on from there. The first year of the seniors, 
had an interesting bunch of guys. Um, Rolf Lane played ex-Melbourne, and he went on to become the first general manager at Waverley. Another guy, Peter Raleigh, he's the first guy who was a father of an AFL player, uh, James Raleigh, you might remember it Geelong. And then by 1965, there was such a talented young group of guys that uh, they won a premiership undefeated in 65. And Frank Frank Reed, the um, there, he was the coach. He was passionate, mad Collingwood supporter. He'd been a an athletics coach, and that's how um, he, he'd work with young men and sport. And uh, everyone loved him. He loved the club. Within three years, we had an undefeated premiers and champion. And 60, 58 years later, they're still the only team to go through undefeated. After that first premiership, Ron, did it put Bo Morris on the map in a sense? And did the kids in the area sit up, take notice of this new successful club and come down in droves? We started producing good youngsters after that. The area was divided into both St Kilda and Melbourne zone. And the border between St Kilda and Melbourne ran down Cromer Road. I lived on one side of Cromer Road. And several friends of ours who lived on the other side were sent off to Melbourne Footy Club, guys like Andy Moyer and Dan McLean, while the St Kilda guys in the early days included Michael Roberts and uh, Mickey Nettlefold, Wayne Judson, Rod Gold, Mel Smith. And it was interesting that probably if we'd been in one zone that a, a club like St Kilda might have had five or six Bowie youngsters playing uh, within 10 years of the club. So it was new and... Uh, it was humble, but we just kept moving on. We added a reserves team in the 60s. And by 1972, at the end of the first decade, every team had won a flag. And so after 15 years, the club had consolidated, but we hadn't taken the next step as a senior club. We hadn't uh, done more than win second division flags, and we were keen to improve that. So in 77 we approached a local guy who had a massive reputation named Jerry Callahan, nicknamed the Monster. He'd uh, been Williamstown captain and captain coach of five VFA premiership sides and at the time considered the best player never to have gone and played AFL. And uh, he was very highly respected and regarded. He moved down to Beaumaris. He was coaching his son in the under-16s at the, y, the local YMCA club and uh, we badgered him all summer in, at the end of 1975 and asked him if he'd be interested in getting back into harness and finally convinced him and he took the job on. Terrific guy, great personality and he took the club up to the next step. So he, he brought a little bit of professionalism and uh, senior football nous into it and in 77 won a premiership um, playing uh, a very strong team that Eddie Mealy captain coached. Uh, Kenny Peace was our vice captain. and The young kids had by then come through and uh, we had a team mainly through Bowie kids that had come through juniors and uh, up to the under-17s. In those years during the 70s, Ron, we're told a quirky little stat about your premiership sides all having at least one under-19 or under-18 player in the team. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? We always played young guys in the seniors. Um, We've had eight senior premierships over the journey, the 58 years, and every side, every one of those premiership sides 
has had a 16 or a 17 or an 18 year old in it, uh, all eligible. Every side's had at least one under 19 player, and we've persisted with youth, and uh, that's been one of the catch catch cries of the club to look after the kids. When the club started, juniors were an emphasis, three junior sides, and developing their potential was a priority. And uh, we've had now had 30 go on and play AFL, 28 males, and in the last two years, a couple of females in the AFLW. So we've looked after the juniors. And a tradition that started early on was senior players took on coaching jobs with the juniors. And so by the time we developed to um, recent years and reached our peak of 42 teams, uh, we'd had a lot of underage teams have been coached by senior players. And even this year, before the um, COVID hit, there were three of the legends of the club. Uh, Adam Catlin, 400 games, the record holder. Uh, Chris Martin, captain, two senior BNFs, and Michael Matulik, a VAFA uh, C-grade competition, best and fairest. They were all going to coach teams between under 11 and... Uh, no, under 9 and under 14. So that tradition of senior players then giving something back by coaching junior teams has always been part of the club. So that that set a good culture. And those early guys with the foundation of respect and of family values have ensured the club's always been fairly harmonious, no no factions, and just we've kept progressing. We've, we've tried to progress. What about some of the characters that came down, Ronnie? I mean, all footy clubs have got their stalwarts, the ones that, that don't go away. Did people just come down in droves? I mean, who came down to the Sharks, apart from yourself, that you saw at the footy club at any given time? It's been a colourful sort of club. had a lot of... Um, Interesting characters over the years. Jerry Callahan, when he joined us, he was so highly regarded that one day we had we had a pleasant Sunday morning on, and some guys rocked up in a couple of big Chevys, and he said he'd invited them. Uh, they were work colleagues from South Melbourne where he worked, and uh, he went out and said hello, and we watched as he walked back with it inside with him, and there was Laurie Nash and Bob Pratt. Two of the legends wow. of the game, who who were mates of Jerry Callahan, coming down to, to Bowie for a Sunday morning sip, and uh, that's the sort of guy people that he brought to the club, and that uh, we got involved coming down. Look forward to the mid nineties, Ron, and the decision to move to the VAFA in nineteen ninety five after an increased number of violent incidents in the southeastern suburban league. What can you tell us about that? There was an incident with Dandenong Football Club. They were in the VAFA, and sorry, in the VFA, and they gone broke, and they owed two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. It was back page news in the newspapers, and they um, they wound up didn't pay any of their creditors, and then reformed a week later as a club called the Red Legs, and they were going to come wanted to come into the Southeast Suburban Footy League, which was by then the Southern Footy League after the merger with both the federal in 82 and the um, churches, Eastern Suburban Churches competition. So they went uh, they went broke and, and they got bad publicity because they said, we're only coming in if we're a first division club. And then we got a phone call saying, uh, look, we have to move someone out of first division. Do you mind going down a grade? And we said, no, uh, we, we do mind. And... Uh, 
there was a bit of a kerfuffle. Um, we picked up the phone the next day, rang Phil Stevens because he lived in Beaumaris, and said we're interested in talking to them about crossing over to the Vaffa. And Phil, at first, uh, at the switchboard, they wouldn't uh, put us through. They thought it was someone playing a joke on him because the Vaffa <laughs> committee had had their think tank the Sunday before and Phil had said, we need to start recruiting some more strong division club, uh, district clubs to come into the competition. For instance, my nearby club, Bo Morris, and he suggested it and he thought it was someone pulling a prank. But it was us and we said, we're interested in talking to you. And they said at their meeting the week before, they had done two things. They consolidated an E-grade competition into North, Central and South. And it was an experiment and they had one hole in the uh, competition because they had expelled uh, one of the clubs up north. It might have been Thomastown or one of the parks. So one of those clubs had been kicked out and there was a hole and we'd like to, we're eligible to join the E-grade Southern Comp. Divine timing, uh, Ronnie. Divine timing. It it was just incredible. But unfortunately, it was all over and done in three days. And uh, we walked in and we're all part of it. Uh, They'd accepted us. The uh, South East Suburban Football League went straight to the amateurs and to uh, the ruling bodies and said, we don't want to lose them. Please don't accept them. Uh, We made a mistake. They got awful publicity about Danny Nong and that move fell through. But uh, we'd made our mind up and it was a great move for us. And what were the things that struck you the most about joining and playing in the Outliners, Ronnie? The things we we really liked about Vassa footy is the amateur part of it for the sake of the well-being of the club, the strong standard. Uh, the not, under-19 comp is terrific. It's the gateway to bring your kid through from under-17s into seniors. We've loved rep footy. We've always put our guys up and it's a way of holding some of our good footballers, the offer of the potential to play in the big V. And, um, and I, I'm a Massive fan of relegation and promotion. I think it's a great system. The uh, the fact that clubs, can, if they're struggling, they can go down and grade, find their feet, regather and start a game. And if they're going well, they've got the opportunity to keep going up. So um, we've done that. in uh, And eventually in 2000, and, uh, so we won a 95 flag in E-grade. Then in 97, we appointed a local guy, Brett Marchant, ex-Melbourne footballer, seven best and fairest down at Men's Home Football Club in a row. He wanted to get into coaching. We thought it was the time to bring in an outsider, and uh, he did a terrific job. My brother Gary coached the 95 side and did that for nothing. That was part of the, the family feeling of people giving back to the club. We brought Brett in, and uh, we took on Mark Neal's old Geelong in the grand final. They had four players that had been Geelong listed the previous year. They were the star-studded side. But Britt was a terrific man-manager. And we had a secret weapon, Aaron Salisbury, who became a star. And uh, we knocked them off in the grand final by eight points. So that took us up to C-grade. 2003, what we did is we beat uh, Collegians in the C-grade final, grand final at Elsinwick Park. And we had a team of 21 out of 22 players who had been uh, come up, brought up through our juniors or our under-19s. And the other one was a 
young guy who moved down from Mildura locally and we found him and uh, got him in. Bryce, he was our one recruit and and that's how we went. We we kept bringing the kids through. Russell Barnes, the uh, Ormond legend, coached us for three years and a terrific guy. And then, of course, we got um, Jason Nifson and he changed the culture. He, he took us up the next step. He, uh, he taught intensity, he taught organisation and uh, he took us to uh, B grade and then took us into a B grade grand final against um, Old Melburnians and uh, we lost that but we went to A grade and I think we became the first district club since the mighty Ormond team of the 70s that uh, had made it up to A grade and we still feel that we're the leading Having finished fourth two years ago in uh, B grade, we're the leading district club in the comp. We we like to uh, consider that the title we will work hard to hold on to, and we we've got to 42 teams. So we've grown from that little 14 club to 42 teams, uh, two under 19 seniors reserves, thirds, women's. We've been very inclusive. I think this year we we're going to fill 40 teams, uh, senior women's in the VASA and at least five or six girls teams in the uh, Southern Metro Junior League. So still very inclusive. And Ronnie, as we let you go, I think you've got a fantastic section of history on the Sharks website. It's been brilliant throughout the week to trawl through it, go back over the early years. I mentioned it at the start of the podcast. How important is it to you and to the footy club to keep that tradition and the heritage of the Beaumaris Sharks going right throughout history? Tradition has been a really key part of the club. One of the things those early RSL and Army guys were, they came back from the war with great organisational skills. They documented everything. So right from the start, they kept a record of every game, every kid and every senior player's ever played. So we've got a tradition, an honour board, a 100-game honour board. We have a dinner every two years for all our 100-game players and all our uh, life members. We have speakers like Barassi and Sheedy and John Kennedy. They've all been, Tim Watson, they've all been along to the club. And uh, when guys like Russell Barnes and Craig Tonkin and other guys from Ormond had joined us uh, on the coaching panel, they, they felt that one of our strengths was this sense of tradition and recognising people. And, and we've got a strong past players committee that uh, run reunions and run functions and and try and keep everyone involved and coming back to the club occasionally. So that's been one of the strengths. Ronnie, it's been fantastic to spend some time with you today and go back to day one of the Beaumaris Sharks right through until the present day. Take care, look after yourself, and we look forward to seeing you out at Banksia Reserve in 2021. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Nick. Talk to you later. Nick, great to have a chat to the godfather of the Beaumaris Footy Club in Ron Nicholson. Uh, If you're listening very early on in his chat, he mentioned the name Andy Sheldrake as the first man to run out and touch grass in the Bo Morris Footy Club jumper back in 1963 when he led the under-13 team onto the ground. Now, we've been able to track Andy down. We've been able to get Andy on the line and have a chat with him. Hello, Andy. Hi, guys. How are you? Thanks very much for having us on. um, Looking forward to it. 57 years ago in April of 1963, you ran out with the under-13s, the first Bo Morris team to do so. Can you remember what you were like at that age and, and that day itself? Uh, 
you know, as people call me, you mentioned 63, you guy like a great-grandfather now. That's <laughs> uh, unbelievable. But, yeah, no, I can clearly remember. Basically, I've been in the area all my life and followed some of the other local sides as a, as a youngster. Cheltenham and Mentone in particular were strong clubs in the federal district. And then, lucky enough to um, the Sharks, uh, cleared, drained the swamp like Donald and um, laid the foundation of the, of the Oval and we started in 63 and I think there were about 200 that the ads came out in the news, local newspapers and the 200 odd people turned up for the under 13 squad. Well, it's, yeah, this will be interesting. Anyway, um, we were lucky enough to work our way through and I got a, a gig in the, uh, in the under 13 team and then very lucky to be in the uh, at the home team because th- we had 13, 15, 17s and seniors as you're probably aware and uh, we had we played a curtain raise and we were lucky enough the 13s <laughs> to be at Oak Street in the first stage and that was a thrill. I remember against East Brighton, the eventual premiers, a strong junior club and um, lost eight 13 goals, about eight goals 13 to one three. I thought, oh, this is just shellacking but <laughs> we had a few bigger losses than that over the years. It's a terrific thrill. You know, you're still only a young fella, but uh, I knew a lot of the boys from the local school, etc. But great thrill, yeah. So, according to the uh, Bo Morris Footy Club website, uh, someone's managed to track down an, an article from March of 1963, which is just fantastic. Uh, your coach in the under 13s was W. Kinane. It does mention uh, you played against East Brighton at home, and your game was yes. at 9:30. Residents support your local team. See your son play and help us by your enthusiasm to make premiers of our teams. What was that first year like? I know you talk about the score in that first game, and maybe there was a few shellackings throughout, but the fact that at 12 years of age, you've got boys older than you playing after you in the same footy club jumpers. Did it just become this extended family for yourself, Andy? It was. You've summed it up beautifully, yes. Um, Phil Kinane was a really um, great with the younger fellas. He's a you know, local community fellow, and... Uh, did a great job, and it, it really set the scene, and it hasn't changed. You would have got that feeling from the godfather, Ron. Uh, the, the spirit of the club in terms of combining the juniors and the seniors, which has always been an aspiration of mine and, and a love of mine with the, with the Morris Football Club and Cricket Club, of course, which I'm involved in. We had great support, and Ron would have talked about the, the RSL uh, fellows who started that club up, and they the work they did, that a lot of them coached. Ted King was the father figure and um, and really set strong traditions, um, strong discipline. And we had, it was a, a buzzer that didn't take long to get to know the kids, the older kids, and we'd all be there watching the seniors, of course, and they didn't take them long to have success. So lifelong friends, and it just, and, it, and as you said, the, it then continued on, and we'll I'll be talking soon about a premiership which that wasn't so far away. But most of those were homegrown kids, sort of in, in, right through, and even until now. But especially in those times, um, we all played, all went to school together, and and that was great. Which is sort of different from the, in some ways, to the amateur ethos, you know, and, and its structures and the different clubs and so on. But it truly is that was the start of a of, of a great. Um, community club and community spirit and that's always been the the um, the spirit of the place and yeah very well supported by parents and community 
Well, as you just said, Andy, let's move forward a little bit to 1970, the first of two senior flags that you played in in the old South East League. And you played against Dingley and you've run out three-point winners. How was that as a nail-biter for your first senior flag? Well, that was a real thrill because as I... In the juniors, we, we started winning a few games off the time, got the under-17s, but we, we, we lost a few early in those early seasons. And, and then we had kids maturing, and I think it was about 80... Well, but most, about 80% of the side were sort of 20 and younger, all very young. We played against the mature Dingby side, which uh, there was a famous Corrigan name in, you know, from the, the Corrigan landowners down there. And they had some good players and a sprinkling of fellas from Cheltenham Football Club uh, came across. And they'd beaten us, I think, three times during the year. We, uh, I think the, the, the last game of the year, we were beaten by about 21 goals by them. And we snuck a bit closer in the second semi and we got uh, within two goals. I actually had my nose smashed and had re-operations and so on and missed the uh, preliminary, but luckily was able to come back to the grand final and that was a, a real great thrill for all of the younger kids to beat a fairly mature age group. Frank Sherrard, um, who was a, one of the RFL boys, a, a great coach and a good uh, communicator, a fellow from the Footscray District in Yesia, played a lot of sport himself. And um, that was a great thrill. And, and of course, as you know, the memories, well, yeah, our reunion was last year, unfortunately, we had to be put off because uh, uh, it'll be this year. But great memories and to win by three points. Where it was nip and tuck all day, which would be the closest we've been all year to them, obviously. And um, we, we then hit, I think, got 10 points ahead with a couple minutes to go. And I got one just before the bell for the first, or oh, oh, out our second senior flag with a great buzz. And I thought, oh, there's plenty, plenty more of these to come, but it wasn't quite to be, but uh, a great thrill. Andy, and we know how players carry on these days when they win a flag, um, particularly that night of. What was it like back in 1970 when you won the first senior flag, I suppose, for the club? How were the celebrations back then? Well, yes, it's... Um, Behaviour patterns, of course, have changed since 70, <laughs> the, 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 the the current arrangements, but but boys will be boys. And we had, um, I think there was a back at the, in the club rooms, and Ron probably mentioned we were in a small little which it's generated a lot of great spirit for many years there. But we we're back there, great support from families and and friends came back, and then uh, round to the the coaches' place on the on the Sunday, and we had uh, uh, you know a week of sort of lunches here and there, but nothing like the structured things, no tattoos on the ankles. Um, <laughs> that kind of thing wasn't, wasn't happening. But we, yeah, it was it's probably relatively subdued to some of, some of the trips overseas and things we hear about. But uh, great. Bovaris Hotel was a, a watering hole for South of the Arrow, to be honest, in, um, in those days. And, and so that was a popular spot where we met uh, bar and lounge, and uh, for a little while, so it was, yeah, no, great times, great spirit, and um, and fond memories. Even my old age, I can remember those clearly, but not, nothing too drastic. And then Andy, seven years later, you you go on and, and you play in another premiership in 1977. Um, your coach is Jerry the Monster Callahan. Um, Ken Peace and Mick Shaw are the captains, and you beat Chadston. You hold them out. 
by eight points in a in a shootout, if you would, considering the scoreboards these days. 17-18, 120-17-10, You're a little bit older. You understand it maybe a little bit more. Uh, how good was it to get back to the top of the mountain in 1977? Terrific. Yeah, we'd... Um between 70 and 77, we'd had a couple of playing coaches and I'd been vice-captain to those fellows and um, uh, good coaches. And we'd played in uh, quite a few semi-finals, but we were quite good enough to beat sides who surged at that time, Ashburns and, and Carnegie's and different sides. And then Chadson set themselves. They'd been the sort of middle-of-the-road team. As they, Eddie Melli uh, of BFL fame and Stuart from Oakley, and they picked up a pretty good squad and uh, similar to the previous side, they'd um, uh, given us tough times during the year. We'd had uh, a, a good side. We picked up uh, fellas with most of ours. As I said, was a homegrown, but we picked up a few players from um, Roddy Pascal from Port Melbourne, Pascal fame, you know, and um, South Melbourne and Port Melbourne. And... I actually, I'm not sure if Ron mentioned, I, I personally didn't because I broke my arm during the year and had complications, so I was runner on the day. So although not quite the same as being in 20, it was a thrill and wonderful that time. And Callahan added a bit of prick to the club. He, we'd sort of gone on in, um, well, well-organised, well-disciplined, but uh, he put he got us really... Warmed up, he, he got he'd seen the best of uh, of VFA uh, football, of course, and um, was well respected around. And his uh, halftime speeches and um, really inspired. He was a man of a man of few words, but uh, very telling words. And uh, we we certainly played for Jerry, and it was a terrific win to uh, to beat that side. But that's a bit of a blur that way. But I, so I was runner that day. Was, was on for young and old. In fact, it's interesting with the amateurs, one of the reasons when we moved across the amateurs were some of the issues that sort of happened on field at times. You know, suburban football, you, know, you would know that it was pretty live. There was uh, people going down left, right and centre in the first few minutes. So it was a terrific win by our boys. And again, great uh, spirit. There was a couple of famous names in the in our... Uh, the first and second both won that day. And um, we... Jerry was tossing up where to play a couple of 17-year-olds in it, uh, Michael Nettlefold and Michael Roberts. Um, and they put him in the second. They still played them in the second five. They'd been playing in the 17 during the year. And um, and, and we reckon that Jerry wasn't particularly good judge when they were playing for St Kilda first the next year. But uh, So it was a great squad. And, and Neil Roberts and Michael get back. Uh, of course, you know, Michael was an old... Uh, no, Toby, his brother, was at the old Melburnians, of course, for many years. But uh, Michael and Neil get back and talk of the, the the fondness of, especially that year, for Michael Roberts and the, you know, cupping him up a bit and getting the few games in the seconds and all, and then playing that final. So terrific, um, terrific spirit, and and that was a great uh, a great experience again. Yeah. And all I took from that was Jerry was a man of few words, so exactly the opposite to Joseph Pignataro is what I'm hearing here, Andy. (laughs) I just want to talk about some of the accolades that you've picked up along the way. You were made a life member in 1983. You were a team of the decade in the 70s, but you were a member of the team of the 20th century as well in 2000. So how does that sit with you looking back? Look, very proud. um, 
you know, as we all you say, oh, we're not in it for all this sort of caper, but it's those years that you've generated that uh, to get to those particular stages. So um, knowing all the boys and having all the fellas that were sort of local, uh, coming from the local community and so on, um, and you play so many games as I did, I think at one stage I had to, I passed um, Nick Kirkby, who was a famous, um, really good footballer for Bo Morris. Lucky to hold the record games for a little while. So I think after a while you play so many, they put you in. But that was that was a great thrill. And we had, um, you know, obviously there was another side they picked, which were the AFL and VFL boys. But uh, to be to be able to get to that squad and see the, uh, the, the, the boys, many of whom you've, Played with obviously in the team of the decade you played with those boys, and and that was that was great. They could take all your other records, pass you with different things. But that that bears there, and um, and it's 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 a nice little addition, you know. For me, that was spending the far too many nights down at the club after trading and so on, and the day to day stuff of playing all the games, both cricket and football down there, was the key to it. But that's nice, of course, to um, to get the recognition, and I. I've lived locally all my life and I taught locally and you run into students and so on. So you, you show them the name there just to keep them, keep them on their toes and, uh, <laughs> and that's all good fun. But yeah, they're very proud. I uh, played all of my sport at Bo Morris um, cricket and football. A couple of times I nearly went to, um, I was thinking at Seaford and had been a couple of little times, but uh I'm glad I didn't go. I, I went. I signed once to go to Mentone and went back to Ted Keating at the, the Godfather there. And he said, "Come out and help with the under-13s training first, Andy." And that was it, you know. So, so never left. So it's the the fact of being there through all of those years, um, a club that really has never had hassles. But the fact that other clubs around the areas, the Cheltenhams and Mentones and Parkdale, all had issues with. Junior, senior, and the, the linking of those. So Bowie kept that together. In fact, I was on the junior committee, president of the junior committee for a while to sort of fight hard to keep that strong link with our junior component and the seniors. So they were the really the enjoyable moments for me. The others are, are out on and great. You can have a couple of drinks. Of course, we build them up. They put a bit of mayo on it. But uh, yeah, it's that spirit. And, and you can go. I can go down any any day now, and that's another part of it. Go down any even now as a in the 60s, I won't say I'm to turn 70, in the 60s, and, uh, and, you, and you get well-received and you can speak to the boys. That's terrific. Andy, it's been absolutely fantastic going back down memory lane with yourself this afternoon, chatting all things the Bo Morris Footy Club. Hopefully in 2021 we get a full season and we get to come down to Banksia Reserve and, and see the team play and catch up with yourself and we can reminisce about the good old days. Thanks for joining Thank us. Thank you. I appreciate the talk and uh, good luck. And it's one thing I should say, um, you know, I was there when the vote was on about the, when we joined the amateurs from the Southern League at that stage. And I thought, oh, I'm not sure. We'll lose players, but... Um, the club has gone from strength to strength with the, you know, the strength and the structures of the amateur football. And it's, uh, it's great to, and I, I taught it all at Brighton Grammar, so, you know, the old Brighton boys, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what it's all about for all of us, uh, being comfortable on the ground. And then after the game, seeing all the mates that we all played against and coached against. And, and this, this is all part of that. So it's a pleasure to be on and, and good luck. Good luck with it all at headquarters. And thanks for the chance to have a chat. Good on you, Andy. Have a great day, mate. Take care. Good on you. Bye, boys. Thanks very much. How good to go back down memory lane, Nico, with Ronnie Nicholson and with Andy Sheldrake. Two men 
who ran out on day one of the Beaumaris Sharks back in 1963. I loved listening to Andy. You'd think as a 12-year-old boy, um, you might forget these things when you, as he said in his interview, he's not 70 yet. He's still in his 60s. <laughs> he's very close to the 70s. I do remember my first game being 11 years old, but my goodness, what a recall he's got on that first game. Him remembers the score. Phenomenal. Um, do you remember your first game when you were 12 years old? No, I do remember like days that I was kicked because I used to dominate, as you can imagine. But no, I do not remember my first game. I'm I'm late twenties, and I have nowhere near the memory of our great man Sheldrake. So you are impossible to deal with sometimes. Now the Bo Morris Footy Club, of course, as we've known and come to learn since 1962, they've been around. Now across the website bomorrisfc.com.au, they've done Team of the Decades. They've also released a team of the 20th century, which they did back in 2000 uh, to mark 40 years of their footy club. I'm going to read that one out. You're going to read us out very shortly the first decade of the new millennium, which, of course, is Ammo's related. They've named a team for that. And I'm assuming in the coming weeks, maybe before the year's out, they'll name a 2011 to 2020 side. If they don't, we've officially put the call on their official podcast to do so now. And I'm sure Ronnie Nicholson is feverishly putting that team together. But as we always do, Nico, from the back line, the best team of the first 40 years of the Bo Morris Footy Club. In the back pocket, Andy Easton, who's also the vice-captain. So good on you, Andy. Ian Todd, fullback. Ray Johnston in the other back pocket. Graham Perry, Greg Barkley, and Tom McNicholas across the halfback flank. Chris Powell, Murray Pitts is in the centre. John McLeod, and then on the half-forward flanks, Johnny Taylor, Ken Robinson, Mickey Shaw, the other vice-captain. In the forward pocket, John McNicholas, so maybe the brother of Tom, you can assume there, Nico. Uh, Jeff Skinner at full forward. David Nicholson in the other forward pocket. The captain is the Ruckman, Bruce Smith. Mel Smith is the Rover. Mick Kirby is the Ruck Rover. On the bench, they've named eight players. Ross Elwood, Greg Evans, Mark Hall, Sean Henrahan, Ross Harford, Braden Haynes, Stuart McKinnon, and our man who we just spoke to, Andy Sheldrake, rounds it out with Frank Reed, the coach of the Bo Morris best team of the first 40 years. How good is that, Nico? What an honour. What an honour if you named him one of those sides. And what about the current one, the Ammos one, the most recent side they've released? Nico, you got that in front of you right now. Yeah, very keen to read this one out. 2002 to 2011, all in the amateurs. Matt Duggan, Mark Ensor and Timmy Collins across fullback. Mick Atkins, Sean Coote and Mark Boone across the centre line. Adam Kaplan, their overall games record holder. Murray Pitts again, he was in the team you just read out. And Tom Dean on a wing. Rob Cathcart, Matt Pettering. And I suppose the thing about Matt is that there's four incidents from a tribunal on their website, and he's in three of them. Absolutely <laughs> outstanding by Matty. Will Merton's on the other half forward flank. Full forward is Marcus Lee, Scotty Gower, and Mike Machulik. In the rucks, Luke McNicholas, Chris Martin is the vice captain, and Braden Haynes is the captain. On the interchange, they've got five in this one. It's Luke Atkins, Calvin Barnes, Alex Bennett, Luke Buller, and Luke Healy, and the coach unsurprisingly, is our man that he's about to come up and talk to us, Jason Mifsud, and his assistant, Craig Tonkin. Fantastic for those players. Nico, Braden Haynes is the other one, along with Murray Pitts, who's in both of those sides. And I'm actually looking forward to asking Jace about his relationship with Braden. I think it was almost an, an unofficial succession plan when Jace finished up at Bo Morris and 
and uh, Braden took over after that. Of course, they've also had some individual success at their footy club with league best and fairest. Now, of course, we in the Premier section talk all about the Woodrow medal, but they've had a few in lower sections over the journey, Nico. Can you tell us a couple of champions of the Bow Morris Footy Club who have been the best player in their given sections? Well, they've had two senior best and fairest winners in the VAFA, so both in C section for the Lou Zachariah medal. They had Murray Pitts. Again, it's the third time I've mentioned him. He's in both Team of the Century and Team of the Decade, and he won a Zachariah medal in 1998. And in 2002, Michael Machulik, who was also in that team, won a Zachariah medal. But the thing that they've always done well and that we have spoken about already is that their juniors and their young players um, have obviously been a great source of talent for them. Um, They've had quite a few under-19 medalists. We've got Hayden Bruce, Andrew Watson, Adam Hardiman, and that we've also got PH Brooks and also in Club 18, not quite young, probably at the other end. Of the <laughs> Paul Sherman's one one two in section two. Outstanding for all of those people. Nico, we're going to keep moving because we've still got heaps to come. Uh, right now, though, the longest-serving coach of the Morris Sharks, I'm very excited to chat to him about his time with the Morris Sharks, but I can't wait to hear you talk to our, talk to Jason Mifsud about kicking over 200 goals in a footy season. That is incredible, <laughs> and I don't know if it's fact, but we're going to ask him right now. <laughs> 33 minutes goal last quarter. Got on forever! Coach Duggan! Zoran! Zoran's gone! Bo Morris win the Premiership by one point! This is the most unlikely Premiership ever! They came from 45 points down at quarter time to win the game by a point! Ladies and gentlemen, we've witnessed one of the all time! Great grand finals and the supporters come from everywhere. What a game of footy. Bo Morris winning 10 11 71. Caulfield 9 16 70. This is the Club in Focus podcast. All thanks to Mequicare helping and supporting us right through year 2020. They've been around since 1959. Today we are looking at all things Bo Morris Sharks and their longest serving coach is Jason Mifsud, well-known to many people across the Ammos and AFL circles, and he's been good enough to join us. Hello, Jace. Oh, good morning, guys. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Can we go back to the start for yourself, not on your footballing journey, but how you came to be part of the Bo Morris Footy Club? How did you get involved with it in the very first place? Well, it was by accident, largely. I mean, we are living in Cheltenham at the time, and... Um... Uh, in 2006, I, uh, I was at St Kilda, an assistant coaching role with Grant Thomas, who is a long-time mentor of mine. Uh, we all got the sack at the end of 06. And then Rodney Eade, who was coaching the Bulldogs, had actually coached um, the big countryside that I captained when we beat the amateurs, I think, in 03. Um, and Rocket called and said, why don't you come and work at the Bulldogs? So I had a three-year contract at the Bulldogs and then, and that was mid-07, oh, sorry, that was 07, 8, 9. But then mid-07, David Matthews, who um, I knew through the sort of country chance and the Geelong footy league, he was the general manager of game development at the AFL. He called me mid-07 and said that they had some Indigenous initiatives they wanted to stand up at the AFL and was looking for the right person with the right skills and started to talk to me about that particular role. Um, and over the back end of 07, 
I sort of made a, a painful decision in many ways, given I was passionate about coaching and that was my aspiration to pursue at AFL level. Uh, I had made a decision to move to the AFL in an executive role. And then at the end of 07, early 08, John Collins, who's a, who was the president at the time at the Beaumaris Footy Club, just a terrific person, an amazing family. And he called me to say that he'd called, he'd rang Grant Thomas to say if Tomo wanted to coach Bowie, and Tomo was really happy with the offer given nobody had spoken to him since he'd been sacked at St Kilda <laughs> and basically said, look, thanks for no thanks, but there's a guy who lives just around the corner that's going to be terrific for you. And um, so Colo rang me and then Stephen Nash and Colo came into the AFL and we had lunch one day and they sort of just laid out the vision of, you know, their views on where the footy club's at and where they wanted to go to. And, and I hadn't really paid much or given much consideration to move back into coaching, particularly at community level, for no particular reason, but I'd sort of done that for a long time in Southwest Victoria and sort of thought I'd go into a different phase of my career. And after a couple of conversations with Johnny Collins, in particular, he, he's just an amazing person, good values, and I thought, geez, if the Beaumaris footy clubs are a reflection of John Collins, hmm. just from a community point of view, it'd be a good thing to get involved with myself and my family and um, give something back at community level. And then... I sort of agreed to take on a bit of a mentoring role to Brayden Haynes and Shawnee Coote, um, Matty Duggan, just sort of, you know, stalwarts of the Bowie Footy Club, who were basically going to coach the club. And then after a couple of training sessions, me being me, it sort of become, well, if I'm going to be there, I might as well sort of be there in um, in full. And then the start of the journey. And so that's that's the backstory and, you know, how, how fortunate I was that, Tom one referred Bowie and then, you know, John Collins showed some persistence and, you know, had an amazing seven years there and, you know, met some just terrific people and really got to see the essence of the, you know, the amateur ethos and even though we had a point of difference being a community club, we took great pride in that and, you know, wore the badge of honour and was able to achieve some success along the way. Yeah, and I know Nick's going to ask you about the 2010 flag in a moment. I just want to get back to when you first had those meetings. Um, in terms of Amos clubs, Bo Morris was quite young in 2007, mm. having been there for just over a decade. So what mm. what did you find when you first came through the doors and you were named the coach? What was the club like when you first got there? But in terms of values, it was amazing. You know, it was a great club. It was a club that I was familiar with, right, because in many respects it's like a country footy club. You know, it's the centre of the community. It's, it's the hub where people congregate. You know, you've got all the, you know, colourful characters that every footy club's got. You've got, you know, the stalwarts. You've got the old followers around the bar, um, you know, and all those other particular things. So in terms of people, just amazing. You know, just in terms of having young children and saying, you know, is it an environment you want your young kids to grow up in and around as a result of the senior footy club? I had just no hesitation in that being the case, and that's very important to me. Because um, footy's not about footy. Footy's about people. And, you know, with a young family, that that's the environment you want your family to you know, to contribute to, but also be the beneficiary of. Um, and then on the football side of things, what they thought they needed to do versus what they needed to do were two quite distinct, different things. Um, it wasn't a lack of willingness or a lack of work ethic. It was, they essentially just didn't know what to do well enough for long enough um, to be successful over a significant period of time. And, so it, it, it took a lot of unlearning. <clears throat> that's the right term. It took a lot of unlearning, of, you know, some ingrained, you know, habits and behaviours to 
get us to a point where, you know, the players in particular understood the demands and the disciplines and the professionalism required to be just a good player week in, week out, let alone a good team year in, year out. And, you know, you're stuck your years up as a result of that. So that was the first thing. Um, so really, t- 2008, even though it's difficult because we didn't have a home ground, our home ground was being renovated. So we'll, you know, we'll sort of the travelling gypsies in 2008, and Ronnie Nicholson just did a power of work just finding us bloody training ground to train on every second, third week throughout the year, let alone a home ground to play on. So the players had to, you know, it was, a, it was an educational process. It was a, an accelerated, um, you need to stop doing this and start doing that and actually become any good at it. Um, and then there was the club in general, and the club spent a lot of time, and I say this very warmly and with great, um, you know, empathy. The, the, the club spent a lot of time looking at all the, you know, the big clubs, the Xavier's, the Scotch's, you know, the university teams. And, and I, I mean, it's just not in my genetics to look at what everyone else is doing. You look at them, take the learnings, but then apply it. And it didn't spend enough time looking at what its own assets were. And, you know, we're the big, we're, if not the biggest, the biggest footy club in the country, not just the amateurs, but the country. You know, something like 30 teams from juniors right through to seniors. And we just didn't farm our junior program. Like, we didn't invest in it. We didn't spend time in it. We didn't coach the coaches. We didn't build a curriculum. And in the junior players, you've got a junior parent base. And they're your next generation of, you know, presidents and secretaries and fundraisers and, you know, all those other things that go into building a sustained football club, not just a football team. So... I was pretty frustrated by that early days and I just didn't quite, it just took me a while to get my head around it. Um, but really, you know, 20, 20, 2008 was Steve learning curve for me into, into understanding the amateur system more intimately, understanding the Bo Morris sort of community and you know, the footy club in particular. And then there was the footy program that we had to you know, professionalise and, you know, great support from Craig Tonkin who you know, played in multiple premierships you know, other coaches that really, they've seen the program we're building and then to attract them become relatively easy. But, but it took a lot It took a lot of work. It took a lot of work. And the value's terrific, just know-how poor. Um, and really we spent 2008 rectifying that. And then really 20, 2009 into 2010, we, you know, we started to understand what it took just to be a good team week in, week out, let alone, you know, a premiership threat at the back end of the year. Well, tell us about 2010, Jason. I'm excited to hear your thoughts on this because throughout the season, he's had seven games where you won by 10 points or less and then you've gone into the final <laughs> series against Caulfield Grammarians, particularly in that grand final. It was 45 to zip at quarter time and you guys <laughs> have stormed home for a one-point win. What can you tell us about your memories of that grand final win? It's, yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, we used to train as a part of the footy curriculum that I talk about and the footy programming. Given where we were, like we weren't, a, we weren't. A, I mean, when I went to when I when I went to the club in two thousand and eight, you know, we weren't conditioned appropriately, both mentally or physically. And you know, in terms of running a you know a, a game style or a brand of footy, it was, I found it to be quite foreign when I started talking about those things. So that just just the know your role, play your role was just, it was a sort of new concept for Bowie at the time, the team at least. You know, they might have heard it on Channel 7 on the Friday night footy, but then <laughs> didn't really understand it on a, you know, their own sort of game. But it's not dissimilar to a lot of footy teams, right? You know, they know the words but can't sing the song. So 
you know, we had to work hard on just game-based scenarios, and that was a part of our building of the footy program. And because we're never going to be the best team by a long way, uh, we used to have a mantra of, you know, where others give in, we give more, and we're always just going to be fighters and scrappers. So therefore, you're going to end up with a lot of close contests. And we just train scenarios, you know, minutes out or moments out, here's the, you know, here's the scenario, you know, back pocket throw in, you know, set and bounce, blah, 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 or this, you know, the, the general rhetoric. And we just, and really that paid off at the end of 2010, because as you said, we, we just, we'd won the, the, the close one. You know, we just had a track record of hanging in. And when you get affirmation, when you train scenario and you get that match day affirmation, the players just believe in it. Like, it could actually even be the wrong plan, but if the players believe in it, it ends up being the right one. So we just had a we just had a, a year of being able to hang in, find a way, train the scenario, produce it on match day. And I mean, if I think about the prelim final, I think we beat Ajax by you know two or three points. Like it was, you know, it's a scrap towards the end, and we just knew what to do. And we had players who owned the moment. You know, I, you know, I think about Luke Nicholas and Sean Coote, Braden Hart. And, uh, Matty Duggan, you know, uh, Mark Ensor at full back. Um, you know, we had some sort of wise heads like Tim Collins, Marcus Lee. Because um, outside of that cohort of six or eight I just mentioned, I mean, they, we we went into a, a really heavy coach the player mode of, you know, on, on field empowerment. Those players just sit in selection. I mean, I was implying, and I used to say, you know, if you're going to run out with a guy, you want to make sure you can trust him. And they really just owned the responsibility that we empowered them with. And it's the strongest on-field leadership group I've ever seen in my whole career. Um, um, and that and that paid off for us in the grand final because they essentially took control of the, the game at, at quarter time. I mean, we, we just didn't get out of the blocks. I think we had some, you know, some fatigue by getting over the, by getting over Ajax in the prelim. And that was a learning curve for me because, as you fellas know, you know, two up, two down. And that's not in my genetics. Like, going up without winning it doesn't actually, didn't actually mean anything to me. It still doesn't, to be honest. Like, you break the tape. If you're going to make the grand final, your duty is to win it. And not just, you know, have a concession of, okay, well, regardless of next week, we actually go up anyway. So I struggled with that. I, I struggled with it leading into the finals because that was the narrative around the footy club. Oh, if we get to the grand final, we'll go up. And I... I mean, my naivety to the amateur system and the amateur ethos around that, I mentally struggled to deal with it. And Craig Tonkin, you know, I, I owe him a lot in my life, let alone, my, you know, my time at Bowie because he was like a counsellor to me, just managing <laughs> my frustrations through just that, the, the sort of attitude towards making it good enough because we still get re- reward for it. Um so we beat Ajax, went up, and I just think we had some jet lag from the week before and just didn't get out of the blocks. And to Caulfield's credit, I mean, they were the dominant team of the year. You know, a really mature team, well coached by Stephen Lawrence. And they had they had match winners on every line. We just didn't. You know, I think we were the better team, but they were clearly the best side. Players took control at quarter time. And all our job was is to reinforce what our track record had been throughout the year and you know when others gave in we gave more and this is the moment you know and we've got three three quarters to reel it in don't panic be clear-minded about it you know know your old player oh, we did have an advantage of the wind in the second quarter and in big games if you don't score on my pension you, you know you miss the opportunity and we sort of squared it up or didn't square it up but we regathered that momentum at half time at, uh, by half time and really you know the old saying of the 
premiership quarters the third quarter. I mean, we dominated the third quarter, both in general play and scoreboard, and got to the last quarter, and we sort of hit the front probably too early in the end because I, um, Caulfield were defending even in the first 10 minutes of the last quarter, even though they had the win. They were still defending a lead. That's just a, you know, it's, a, it's an on-field psyche that happens in games. And really, we hit the front, you know, mid, mid-mark of the fourth quarter from memory. And then AJ, um, Caulfield, sorry, I thought, geez, we're going to start the score. And then really, you know, you just see like, two heavyweights in the centre of the ring just sort of landing blows <laughs> on each other. And it was sort of, it's going to be a TKO. That was the only, that was the result. It's never going to be a knockout. Um, you know, and we got the game on points. So, I mean, that's, that's my memory of it. And you seem like, I've watched a few interviews with you in the lead up to today, and you seem like a very cool, calm and collected individual. How were you in those final <laughs> 60, 120 seconds of that one, just holding on to a one-point lead? Well, I wasn't cool and calm. And I, 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 I can be sort of, I can be not cool and calm, but I think still collected. But I remember Gary Nicholson, who's, you know, the Nicholson family, just, you know, they're just, just wonderful people and just very selfless and kind and generous and, uh, you know, towards the Bo Morris Footy Club in a whole range of particular ways. And Gary Nicholson was sitting up, who's the brother of Ron, and he, he was sitting up and I thought he was in the timekeeper's box, but he was sort of beside the timekeeper's timekeeper's box at at, uh, at Trevor Barker there. And I remember sort of saying, you know, five minutes into the quarter, 10 minutes into the quarter, 20 minutes into the quarter, how long to go? And I sort of got to, you know, five minutes to go. And I said, I yelled out, how long to go? How long to go? Because, Time is critical, right? Because it's about you put extra behind the ball. Do you maintain an attacking frame of mind? Like it's in terms of the mechanics of your coaching, the timing was critical. And um, and I still wanted to attack, even though we're you know a point or seven points up. I was still more of an attacking coach. I never really, if I was seven points up, I wanted to kick another goal and not save a goal. Um, and I remember yelling out, how long to go, how long to go? And Gary Nico said, three minutes to go. And I thought, you know, okay. And I kept saying to Craig Tonkin, what do we do? What do we do? Do we put one back? Do we just, you know, um, put density around the stoppages? Do we actually take one out of our back line and create a step forward to be really bold and brave? Because they're the, they're the conscious decisions you've got to make as a coach. Be prepared to lose to try and win. And we would do that during the year. I remember a game mid-year. I mean, we we're three goals down with you know, three minutes. Uh, sorry, fifteen minutes to go, and we end up playing seven forwards and six and five defenders. And the opposition spent the last fifteen minutes trying to work out what the hell we we're doing, um, and we won the game because um, they they just got so confused by you know the brashness of thinking we're going to play one less defender and one more forward. Um, and Gary Nico said, "I swear," he said, "for fifteen minutes, three minutes, three minutes," and. I, I wasn't that cool and calculated. I was pretty frustrated that the stopwatch seemed to have, you know, um, stalled at three minutes to go. But anyway, so that that was a pretty frantic period of time. And Matty McNally, who'd done his shoulder, a great young Bowie boy, he played the first half of the year, did his shoulder, and then we converted it into our match day runner, given his relationship with the players. And we wanted him to be a part of the group still. I still feel sorry for Matty because he was... He's pulled from pillar to post in the last five minutes with instructions and players are yelling at him, coaches are yelling at him <laughs> um, and all the rest of it. But, you know, you look back because your victory, you know, because you, you have a victory, you look back with some humour on it. And, um, as I said, you know, we won by a TKO and 
just uh, yeah, great memories and yeah, it's just the people. That's what you remember the most, and the the moments that create for other people around the club. You know, the people are just very selfless with the time and effort they contribute. Absolutely, Jace. Uh, there is one man you mentioned a bit earlier on, uh, Braden Haynes, who I'm sure you have a very strong relationship with. He was your mm. captain in the 2010 flag, and and by our readings and research throughout the week. It was almost a succession plan of you guiding him into becoming the next coach of Bo Morris after yourself and in turn coaching the 2016 uh, flag for Bowie. What was that like, yeah. coaching him and then watching him develop as his own coach after you? Oh, it's terrific. You know, I've always had a mantra that, you know, you've got an obligation to leave the club in a better place than you inherited. Um, and I know there's a whole bunch of theories around succession plans, but we... In 20, 2008, you know, we, we invested heavily in our player development, player leadership. And as I said, um, you know, I took on very much a backseat role to, you know, we'd set the training program, we'd assign training to particular players, help them with their messaging, you know. So they really got a very hands-on practical coaching experience. They were, they were like, always had the casting voting selection, Um you know, there was never, there was, I can't recall a time in the seven years, somebody might correct me on this, but I just can't recall the time where the players didn't have the casting vote. Um, you talk to any coaching group and they spend 20 minutes on the team and then 40 minutes on the 22nd player. Um, <laughs> and I used to always say to the players, well, you know, you know my views, I've shared them with you, I've been strong on my thoughts on it, but ultimately they're your teammate on Saturday, who do you want to play with? Um, and Braden was, you know, he was leading that from the player, you know, for, even from within the playing group and always had a natural appetite and instinct for coaching and managing and leading. Um, so he, he, he sort of became the natural choice for that uh, succession. Um, you know, we'd speak constantly throughout the week and he's a real sponge around accumulating knowledge and experience and information so he became the natural succession. I mean, it wasn't, it, we didn't start off that way. Um, but then really towards, yeah, probably the last couple of years, uh, I mean, there'd be days where he'd just take the pre-match meeting. He'd address the players during the breaks. Um, you know, he'd do the post-match review, the Tuesday night summary. You know, the leadership group would have, there'd be a division of, you know, edits that the leadership group would lead. So, I mean, I took great pleasure in, coaching and developing that group to own the program and, you know, own their successes. Um, so Braden was a very natural successor, but he had to work hard at it. You know, he, it wasn't a natural sort of just choice. Um, and, um, you know, to see him, you know, embrace the role when he was appointed and go through his own difficult initiation um, to then, you know, prevail in 2016. I've always, you know, it's it's probably I probably have as much excitement about that premiership than I do the twenty ten one, and obviously we went into A grade, which you know the first time in the club's history, and that's a special marker as well. But yeah, I mean it was never a surprise to see Braden roll his sleeves up and get to work on becoming the coach, and you know he wouldn't have left any stone unturned to ensure that they accomplished that premiership, and you know just was wrapped for him then and still am that he's got. You know, another uh, another credit to his name at the Beaumaris Footy Club outside of his playing career. Jace, just the last one from me. I just want to quickly go back to your own playing 
career and one particular performance that's come to our attention in 1994 back with Karamut. Um, hmm. I've looked at the stats. There was a game where you kicked 28 goals. You kicked the most in the season, 205. Particularly, <laughs> I want to talk about, and I'm not just brushing over those, but this is outstanding, the, the grand <laughs> final. And I've heard that um, you were down potentially at halftime. You've moved the entire forward line as coach of that team up into the wing, put yourself one out, kicked eight goals in the second half and won the game. Can you shed any light on this? <laughs> well, they're two, yeah, they're two different, well, two different, Club. So, yeah, 94 when I got cut at St Kilda. I was only 20 and I'd probably already played five years of senior footy in the Handler League. And without sounding arrogant, I was, I was always passionate about, you know, management, leadership and coaching. And when I went back to the Hampton League, I um, I wanted to be an assistant coach in the major league. And every club laughed at me and said, like, you're just too young, you're not ready. And so I thought, well, I'll just go and do it myself because I'll either be right or I'll be right. And I went to Caramut, small country club, um, you have won a premiership in 27 years, and we won, yeah, one ninety, yeah, we won the flag in '94. That just validated my belief in what I could do and how I could do it, even though I was still learning uh, on the job, which you know most people do. Um, yeah, kick 28. So it was the day of my 21st birthday. Actually, I still remember it vividly. I um, after quarter time, my assistant coach or chairman of selectors said to me, "You'll break the record today," and I sort of looked at him and said, what record? And he said, the goal-keeping record. And I said, what is it? And he said, 21. And I said, how many have I got? And this is quarter time, mind you. And he said, you've kicked 11 in the first quarter. Um, <laughs> and I, I, it's ridiculous, isn't it, when you think about it. Um, and for me, because when I was a playing coach, I mean, I spent more time in my career as a playing coach than just a player. But, but I was always about the next thing, right? You know, the next move, the next strategy, you know, the next matchup, the next contest, you know. Because whilst you're doing all that, you still got to try and play well yourself. Um, anyway, I think I'd brought, I think I had 19 by half time, um, so it was a formality really, and kicked 28 by the end of the day. So the night of my 21st was a pretty special night, fun night. Um, and yeah, kicked 200 for the year, and I actually averaged 10 in the first half of the year and nine in the second half of the year. So. Uh, a bit of sort of useless information you, for you. You dropped but, away, yeah, Jase. You dropped away. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Um, but I think um, uh, and, and any forward will tell you, you know, you're a byproduct of the supply. That, that's sort of it in a nutshell. Um, you don't have the right supply. You can be the best player on the green. You look at the Tony Lockett theory, you know, like he'd kick 10 a week and secure the win wooden spoons. Um so it's not only about, you know, the individuals, about the, the coordination of your forward line as much as anything. Um, and not very often these days that you have a player kick, you know, 80, 90, 100 plus and your teams win the flag. Mm. So it's, it, it, it's a bit of an anomaly in footy that, you know, you've got the best forward in the game, so you're going to be okay. The, the data just doesn't support that. Um, notwithstanding, yeah, the other grand final you mentioned was 2003. I was playing coach at Caroit Footy Club in the Hampton League and, yeah, it's a bit of an irony in that. We were, 40, we were 49 points down at half time, so the Bowie one were 45 points down at, <laughs> at quarter time. So I had, I had some history to draw on at Bowie as a result of the Caramon experience. Um, what I probably didn't have is one player that I think I thought could kick eight or ten in the second half by themselves at Bowie. Um, <laughs> so we had to find another way. But no, it was a bit of a myth. I didn't, we didn't empty out the forward line. We, I mean, we created space, but that's what good forward lines do on any given game. We, we actually just put our best six players in the forward half. And what that made the opposition do is have to man up on six good players. Um, and as a byproduct, you know, one of us become the beneficiary. And so 
so yeah, I kicked eight straight, second half. Um, uh, yeah, Croatia won their first premiership in 30 years by seven points, and uh, you know, it's the greatest comeback in Hansa League sort of grand final history, and all the associated sort of stories that come with it. So, <laughs> I like, you know, footy, uh, footy's been a big part of my life, and you know, I've just drawn immense. Sounds up. Um, enjoyment out of it and friendships and memories and, you know, it's just stories like this, just bring them all back when you don't necessarily think about them uh, every given day. It sounds like a coaching, coaching masterclass for you, Jace. Congratulations on, on all you've achieved throughout your time here in footy and long may it continue and you'll always be etched in the history of the Morris Footy Club. At the moment, you're the longest serving coach and you're the most recent team of the decade uh, coach of that team. Uh, congratulations on it all. Thanks for joining us and being so generous with your time. Take care and good luck for what lies in store in 2021. Thanks, guys. Thanks and keep up the good work. It's a game of possession now with only seconds remaining. Evans may have the last kick in this grand final. The Eagles are going to win their first leg. A long road to the MCG and his second premiership. The Eagles are premiers for the second time in three seasons. No debate. They have won in the most convincing style. Nico, big edition of the Club in Focus podcast so far. We now move to the current senior coach, uh, Guy McKenna. He's had over 260 games experience playing with the West Coast Eagles, winning a couple of premierships, coaching Claremont and the Gold Coast. He's now back at the Amos and he's coaching the Bo Morris Sharks. I know you and I have had a lot of fun on the podcast recently with Brian talking about how they had Stephen Milne as part of their playing group. Well, we can talk to Guy about having Stephen Milne and having all the Sharks uh, as he joins us now. Hello, Guy. G'day, fellas. How are we? Very well, thanks. Very well. How are you going? How's 2020 found you and how have you found this crazy, crazy year? <laughs> yeah, well, naturally put on pause. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so, um, yeah, we, we started to build. We had groups of, um, you know, 10 um, or 5, I think it was at the start. We could have groups of 5 and then it sort of got out to 10 and all of a sudden before we knew it, the second wave hit. So we're basically, um, you know, the club rooms were shut down and everyone was turfed out and we all had to go into lockdown basically. So, um, which was a shame because we, you know, the, the, you know, the group coming off the year before was all pretty excited. We played in the final, um, final series, we got beaten in the first semi, but they were keen to, um, you know, uh, amend that. So, um, yeah, unfortunately, COVID um, took that season away from us. And one thing I'm interested in, Guy, talking to some other coaches about, do you just take what you did last preseason and put it into this preseason? Because even though we haven't had a season, nothing's changed other than the age bracket of your playing group. Yeah, and and to a degree too, because um, we uh, sort of our club was certainly going through a transition of having a, you know, an older established group sort of had some final success previous before I got there and then um, yeah so we had a few banged up older heads so it's that sort of season off in, in hindsight really helped a few of them so um, <laughs> that's handy and certainly in the position we're in at Bowie because we're not a, a private school um, club if you like um, we're a, a community based club we've got thousands of juniors but as soon as they sort of turn that ripe age they either get drafted move off and play for money and then the, the lure of playing with their mates from school time because of the private schools around us, um, you know, we, we go from having a hundred, just about a hundred teams in our junior our junior um, uh, area of Bowie to all of a sudden we struggle for numbers uh, at the older age because, as I said, for all those reasons, they get up and move away. So 
yeah, to retain some of our senior players has been really good. Some of those younger players coming through that haven't been drafted. And again, I think with the COVID at the top level, with those players shuffling down, I think there might be a one or two years sort of, not hiatus, but a, sort of a levelling off, if you know what I mean. And no opportunity to be some of these kids that maybe, um, uh, you know, won't be seen immediately from the recruiters that uh, obviously will settle into a, a, hopefully a local club like Bowie that can apply their trade. So we're really excited about the year um, from that side of things. Um, you know, and, and as I said, the year off sort of, yeah, we reset and we go again. And did you find different ways to keep the player group engaged? A lot of clubs obviously have a WhatsApp group and some clubs posted their funny videos across things. I think West Brunswick might have done a donating blood type challenge to keep themselves together and involved. What did you guys do throughout this year? Well, um, sort of, uh, we, uh, I normally put up after each game, um, I sort of put up some clips and then we sort of then, I just pull out three or four and then we go through that on a Tuesday as a sort of a learning type thing prior to us training on a, on a Tuesday. So having all that sort of, sort of stuff previously on a hard drive, I thought, well, why don't I just go through a, I'll do a team wrap. So on the on the Monday, I'll, I'll do a review of the, you know, round one and I sort of just pretended to be playing some opposition. Uh, it didn't necessarily relate to the, the vision I had, but I put up the vision and then do a sort of a match report and go through and talk about how Surprisingly, this season we actually went through the whole season undefeated. Our best <laughs> season that the club's ever recorded. Best players were falling off the tree. We had a, de- a debutant, I should say, um, uh, uh, playing for us uh, each round. So we had uh, 18 uh, debutants uh, for the year. That was exciting. We thanked our sponsors, um, <laughs> talked about the aftermatch, um, you know, all that sort of stuff. And um, so that was my uh, sort of... Um, weekend's um, journey for me because without the football of course there wasn't a lot to do so uh, sort of sat down and went through a match report um, you know for, as it turned out by the time we the season got cancelled and I think there was only uh, 10 games or 10 weeks so I got through 10 reports <laughs> and 10 lots of video which we went back and watched all the highlights and lowlights of the season before and um, before you knew it, um, it was sort of the end of the season. What was the feedback like from the guys that you uh, dropped in those 10 weeks to bring the debutant <laughs> in? Well, that was, I think by the end of the 10th week, we had 55 players actually in the site. Um, there was, yeah, uh, there was no one missing out. Um, I'm, not sure we, I'm not sure there were too many milestones. Um, a bit of humour and the boys enjoyed some, uh, obviously watching some of the, the highlights. And it's certainly just another level of, you know, and again, when you talk about the, you know, the challenges mentally and physically, but certainly mentally. And, and it was certainly a great lesson for me around how, how important the football club is to these boys because they have their work life and some are still at school and have their school life. And so, again, it just took me back to that community-based sort of spirit, if you like. And, and you know, Bowie, for, for, for a lot of, or most of these fellas, of course, they're playing at Bowie, is that was like their second life. Um, and to have, sort of, when I say obviously through COVID, have that taken away, it was quite confronting for some. Some would obviously default back to the books or some would default back to their work, but they just really missed out on that opportunity for that, that get together, the um, you know the togetherness, if you like, and the chemistry that they all have, um, because that sport was taken away from them. So um, yeah, the good thing is, look, we've we've had um, we've had one run back, and you know the majority of the boys. If I shut my eyes from that last session we had prior to COVID shutting us down, it's almost like everyone's returned. It's been certainly a, a welcome, you know, addition back into their life. Guy, take us back to 2018. I remember when the news came through that you were joining Bo Morris. It was probably, it was arguably the biggest, highest profile recruit in terms of coaching we had alongside Choco Williams. I think he was at Ajax at the same time. Why did you end up making the decision 
to go to Beaumaris and subsequently, how have you found the standard of the VAFA compared to what you thought it might have been when you came in? Um, well, I just sort of, I left, um, I actually left Essen and, um, and then uh, joined um, Cricket Victoria and um, obviously the change of seasons and all that sort of stuff and I wasn't uh, coaching football and um, I you know, clearly thought at that stage, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm employed, you know, 12 months of the year with Cricket Victoria, there's no chance, you know, and as I said, um, Shoko Royal, um, who I you know, knew of through the AFL circles, didn't know, you know, socials didn't know um, a lot about him um, and clearly didn't realise he lived in the area. I'd, I'd obviously moved and lived in and, and, and bought in Sandringham uh, to really just to get my boy um, through uh, Haleybury College. Um, so we were doing all that. That was fine. Sort of in, in cricket, uh, Choco Royal rings up. Um, Louis would love to have a chat. Oh, yeah, okay, what's this all about? So I meet down with him and Black Rock, uh, Bo Morris, I should say, Black Rock's next, but Bo Morris is a suburb after Black Rock. So, it's, you know, I, I do know it's a, a 20-minute run. I can run from my place. It's a 20-minute run um, by foot and, <clears throat> mind you, it's about a 32-minute run back up the hill um, <laughs> after training. Um, so it's local. Look, I didn't think cricket um, Victoria, but I sort of, you know, when I said sold it to them, I said, well, if I'm coaching, um, I'm coaching a talent specialist. If I'm talking about coaching, it would be wise for me. Um, I, again, I don't, I don't hear or see of any uh, too many cricket clubs ringing me up about coaching right now, which I understand. Um, so if I can keep my coaching juices, it just, you know, practice what my preach, preaching, so to speak. So um, uh, I sort of listened to Choco, and I just thought at that stage. I was about 49 or 48, I think, at that stage. And I was thinking, well, geez, I'm, I'm actually going to sort of enjoy getting back my, you know, weekends and Saturdays and um, <laughs> the winter months. All of a sudden, have a, a weekend to myself now, all of a sudden. And then um, Choco sort of kept twisting, 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 sort of told me the story. There's no one sort of in this area, da 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 da. And I thought, and I looked at Bowie, uh, blue and gold, old, old West Coast, blue and gold, played at Claremont, blue and gold. So there's a sort of natural fit. I'm still getting made around <laughs> the Sharks because East Fremantle back home. Not too fond of the Claremont people, and Claremont people aren't too fond of the East Fremantle people. So um, I'm still getting made around the shark part of uh, part of it. But um, yeah, blue and yellow, and obviously with Choco Rule and his experience, um, I sort of couldn't say no. <laughs> um, so um, down I went. So yeah, Tuesdays and Thursdays, um, Saturdays afternoon, everything sort of locked in. It's 18 games. Good luck, everyone. You're all in the play on, and um, you know. And as far as the standard, as you say, I, I, yeah, I've been pleasantly surprised. Um, you know, and again, just the passion of these boys. I, I do say that they love to, they want to be coached as AFL players, but treated like ammo. <laughs> um, <laughs> because the old winter months turn up and half your side disappears because they go uh, um, skiing in the snow and, or well, they go to Europe for, um, you know, holidays because it's nice and warm. And so you, you ebb and flow on your, obviously, your, your, your talent and players that come through the club. Um, as I said, we've probably been lucky the last, certainly the last few winters. We've got some established players that are, heart and soul players and just love the club, love playing, love playing with their mates. And, you know, they like the, the winter slogs so they don't go skiing or do those things or they're a little bit older. So they've, they've sort of been to Europe and done all that sort of stuff. So they're happy to stay, play and, you know, um, chaperone the, the young kids through their early VAFA careers. I hope I'm not giving up any state secrets here, Guy, but you do live just down the road from a man who used to coach at St Bernard's around the time you joined the Amos. Did you lean on Mark Bomber-Riley for any advice on what you were going to expect when you came into the competition? Oh, yeah, yeah, no question. Yeah, Bomber, yeah, he was, he was fantastic. Um, but 
I said, mate, you must be a, a, a nut. I mean, this is the second time nut. First, first of all, you came up and worked with me at Gold Coast. And the second thing, mate, you live literally in Sandringham. Like, he's just a rup around the corner. I could almost walk by the end of this interview and knock on his door, if you like. Um, and you drive all the way out to St. Bernard's. What the hell are you doing, mate? You know, like, seriously? Like, Christ, you know. But yeah, so he, he certainly, um, you know, and he, again, he, he taught me through pre-season, you know, don't get despondent when, you know, on a Tuesday night there's, you know, you'll have 30 or 30, 40 or players turn up, but then if it's a, a, a sneaky long weekend or something like that's coming around the corner or there's a festival on, you watch them all disappear, and uh, they do. So, uh, but they do it for the love of the club. So you can't hold a, you can't hold anything against them. Um, as I said, they just they just want to come and play for their mates. They want to have some level of fitness. Um, they want obviously some level of coaching. Um, which certainly I, you know, happily provide. But certainly, I would have thought I'm probably going in a little bit too heavy to start with because you got your own expectations, and you know, as far as um, you know, um, you know, expectations around how to train and all that sort of stuff. And I understand it's sort of a, a kick and a giggle, if you like, compared to AFL. But you know, as I've tried to explain to some of these boys, well, they they may, uh, in some cases, um, have another chance. You know, mm. certainly the the younger ones and and the older ones. There's been some boys that. I've been involved in that I've, you know, encouraged to go to VFL clubs because, you know, you know um, they potentially could make a make a living out of this. But, they, you know, in most cases, they choose to return because they just don't, you know, they just love doing what they do, coming in to have a, have a couple of runs a weekend uh, during the week, I should say, and then having, a, having a, a game of footy with their mates on the weekend. And that's what it's all about. They don't want that sort of next level sort of intensity of what goes with that. You know, if they're getting paid, there's an expectation for them to perform each week, you know. Um, I think their their ego is enough to say that they compete in a the contest, they'll kick the ball through the goals where they can or defend it if they have to, you know, because their mates just depend on them. That's the, sort of the level where they're at. Guy, have you always wanted to be a coach when you were coming through, playing with the Eagles and you're under Mick Malthouse and you're the arguably the most hated team in the competition because you'd come over here, you'd beat every Victorian team, then you'd take home a couple of premierships. And uh, Mick was <laughs> your leader at the time throughout the Eagles. Did you then, once your playing days finished, think that I want to follow in in those footsteps and coach my own team in my own right? Well, probably in the in the cricket world I live in now, the coaching and talent specialist. So we've just actually been doing some master classes around that, talking to coaches now and talking about their journey. And that's certainly one of the questions I always ask. Is it something you were thinking of as you were playing, or just something that sort of you know just unfolded as you as you came out of the sport? I I, I tell the story where I'd sit as I got older, probably my last two years. Um, uh, that was my last year with Mick as his captain. Um, not that, you know, he, he would rarely bring us in for around match committee or, you know, which one do you reckon we should pick into this side at uh, Wingman and which one do you reckon, all that sort of stuff. There's not a, not certainly any great detail or a lot of that type of meeting that went on with Mick. But I would sit there and, I'd you know, he'd go through his, you know, pre-match or our main training session and talk about the opposition, what we need to do and all that sort of stuff. And I would sit there and sometimes, you know, go, oh, hang on, no, I reckon this bloke's going to play on that bloke and from the opposition and go through all that sort of stuff. So those sort of juices started to flow. And then the last year with uh, Ken Judge uh, as his captain as well. Um, and then I spent a lot of time, my, my back basically went and sort of had to limp through, um, I saw sort of basically retired at round seven. I ended up playing that farewell game in the very last game, but sort of just hung around. And that gave me sort of a window into a, the coach's box with um, with Kenny Judge and the, and the crew back at West Coast. So, yeah, the sort of juice has started to flow two years out. The last year of my career that sort of ended in um, a back injury, I sort of 
spent some time in the den, I thought, yeah, this is something I wouldn't mind doing. Um, you know, in and around. Everyone talk, t- tells you about that. You, you never have coached until you've actually coached your own team. And generally the journey is as a player or an ex-player, then you're a retired player, you move in as an assistant role and then and then you sort of lead, move into that main main role. And that's the, that's the confronting part because not only do you have to coach and educate the players, but you basically need to spend some time around coaching and educating your staff and your club and, and all those type of things. And that can be quite um, draining if you're not, you know, prepared for it, that's for sure. Guys, Joey said in the intro, obviously a two-time premiership player with West Coast, and we're coming up to 2022 in not too long now, just over 12 months. It will be the 30-year reunion of your first flag. Will everyone get together, reminisce over a few beers and tell stories of the uh, yesteryear, perhaps Peter Matera's goal to put you in front, <laughs> something like that? <laughs> yeah, well, well, that's it. I mean, he has a five-goal three off a wing. So he's eight shots. Um, the funny story we tell, and, and God bless him, because he's a Western Australian too, Mark, there, so he played on the wing. <clears throat> he played on Peter Matera, who he won the Norm Smith. Well, Dean Kemp then won the Norm Smith in the 94 grand final, and uh, he sort of had a bit of uh, time spent on Mark Bairstow as well. So we said, right, that's it, boys. No, everyone's got to queue up. If, you, if we play in another grand final and again against the long, we're all putting our hand up to play on Mark Bairstow because <laughs> we thought we were a chance to win a Norm Smith. But um, now to answer your question, we, we uh, Michael Brennan's a, um, a big, tough old fullback um, back home in, in WA who, um, through his connections, um, uh, we get into uh, the um, Belmont, uh, or Ascot, I should say, and... Um, we go to the races, um, the first week of the races, we, um, we we sort of get a room up there amongst the stalls and the, and we, the 92 and the 94 crew. Some, from memory, I think there's only, there's only three, I think, three changes from 92 into 94. Um, so, yeah, we invite those. I mean, some, obviously, unfortunately, for had my boys athletics, I couldn't go last year. And then this year with COVID, um, we're sitting there with crossed legs. I mean, Wusher had just finished, uh, for what it's worth, um, he just finished the season up uh, with Essendon up in the Gold Coast. So he was he was within days of um, quarantining and all that sort of stuff. But he eventually was able to fly to Gold Coast and, and get back for it. So from what I can understand, and they had a huge win on the punt, if you don't mind, <laughs> um, which was fantastic. Um, Robbie Wiley was there. He obviously was a a player at West Coast and, and certainly coached and he was a runner uh, through that period for us. So uh, he was, you know, certainly one of the first staff to get invited along with the players. So um, I think it was his doing that got a trifecta up in one of the races and the boys had a, a fairly not, a fairly large celebration that night. So, um, yeah, so we, we, we often get together. and Well, we do. We get together each year. We're sort of, oh, I, I fly in, everyone out of the WA flies in and, there's a few of the lads up in mining sites and up in the far north of um, Western Australia. We all come together for that um, that race day, which is a, a great catch-up for us. Guy, I know this is a Bo Morris podcast, but I do just want to ask you, as the, the first side to ever win the premiership and take it outside of Victoria, I mean, what was it like that day and, and then the month afterwards where I'm sure the whole state was almost as angry as they were two months ago when Dan Andrews put us all into lockdown? <laughs> yeah, well... I talk, um, you know, I talk about what in '91 when we actually lost the grand. I mean, everyone talks about you could lose one to to win one, and um, I, I I tell people that was my that was my lesson in the experience. Everyone talks about experience, and people used to say, you know, you you play the game, you're having a career, and you know, coaches will probably know that. Oh, well, what you know, you, you're 49, you're inexperienced. All of a sudden, you, you you've coached your 50th or you've played your 50th. <laughs> go on now, you're an experienced coach. I go, well, hang on. 
why is that change just in because of one number? I mean, are we are we serious about this? But um, I'm not. It wasn't my fiftieth game. But we're playing ninety-one grand final against Hawthorne at three-quarter time. I know we're ten points down, kicking into a slot. Well, a strong breeze. But I thought well, we've kicked goals before. I reckon we can overrun this mob. And you know, clearly, the dominant side in '91 and um, uh, Dunstall and Brereton and Platten, these blokes there just went to another level. And um, I always say to people, I said, "Well, that that's it. We'd 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 got to fifth gear, and we thought we we're going okay. And then they obviously <laughs> took it from fifth gear to sixth gear and just went up a notch, and we just couldn't go with them. And I sort of walked off that ground, obviously disappointed. You know, ten points down, went to fifty-three points down, and you sort of and it was sort of just this lesson, sort of lesson in life about all about experience and that. I talk about the same thing in 92 about passion, you know, for your side. We've just beaten Geelong, you know, we've just done three quarters. We got our medal, um, you know, so it's, you know, half hour at least after the, the game. And we're doing our, you know, our lap of celebration to the, the West Coast faithfuls that were there. And, you know, Southern Stanside, we ran down there towards Punt Road. So three quarters around the ground, we get down to the, you know, uh, the goals at um, the city end. And up on the level one, right on the, across the fence, there was about 25. I could almost describe them, them, every one of them. 25 Geelong supporters with beanies on, scarves. And I remember grabbing Woosher and I was sort of looking up at these people. Like, what the hell are they doing still here? They're Geelong supporters. Oh, wouldn't they have left, you know? Oh, we've just beaten their side. Well, they were, some of them were sitting, some were standing, but they were, you know, gesturing and mouthing words. And, you know, you could almost hear it over the roar. Of the, and they were just giving it to us. And I just thought, I grabbed Woosher and I said, mate, Look at these people. Look at these supporters up here. I'm telling you, that's passion. You know, everyone talks about the Chardonnay set at West Coast, but have a look at these Geelong supporters. Their side's just been beaten. They're the, they'll be always remembered as the side that lost the cup out of Victoria. And look at these ones. They, they've paid their money and they cheer their side as best they possibly can. And now they're giving it to the opposition. And I just said to Wisher, mate, that is what passion is all about. I said, I reckon that's brilliant, you know. Um, but yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it was certainly a you know a fantastic time. You know, fly back into Perth and streets aligned from from there back to Subiaco with people and fire trucks were going off and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it was um uh, yeah very exciting for the state um, and um, you know and certainly for WA football. And I have to ask you as we finish. I mean, we mentioned at the top that you at one point had Stephen Milne playing for you. Do you do you use any of your past contacts to get those kind of players retiring from AFL or finishing up at the top level to come back and play with you? Or in terms of recruiting for Bo Morris, given that you did mention a bit earlier on, and we know you're one of the district clubs around the competition, you don't have the old boys' school to lean on. What do you do tactically to get uh, recruits to come down and play for the Sharks? Yeah, it is. It is hard. I mean, obviously we've got Brian Rawl, who's sort of in the, the coaching space with us as well. Um, yeah, it is tough. I mean, community-based club and what we can offer. But you know, our, our president Terry Lucas is as passionate as man about football and and a football club as you, you'll ever meet. Um, you'd certainly rival Eddie Maguire, I reckon. <laughs> sure. um, you know, and, and all of them do as the best they possibly can. But ultimately, it's about you know in the environment you try and create. You know, whether you're a president, a coach, a teammate, all that sort of stuff. Yes, it's a community, and we our, our slogan is "Once a shark, always a shark." And the club itself, from its junior point of view, has produced a lot of great players. You know, Gunson just won a, a, um, um, a, a Hawthorne a Best and Fairest. Um, um, young Scrimshaw's there now as a, as a hawk. He's been up the Gold Coast, of course. Um, a couple of Sydney Swans blokes. Um, Hayden McLean, I actually worked with at, at Dragons actually when I came out of the Gold Coast. So worked there for a bit. So from a playing point of view, I mean, they've got a rich history of some great players in there. So Milne, 
And because it's certainly a St Kilda-ish type area, obviously because it's Bayside, so there's that connection um, certainly with some St Kilda folk. So, yeah, to, to coach Milne was, you know, something. I mean, I'd seen him from afar and coached against him. Uh, never played against Milne, of course, but um, clever player and all that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, I think he had about 15 hamstrings, I think, in one, not one season. He actually had them in one game, I reckon. And uh, we tried to get him out of the goal square. Um, uh, and actually, our goal square at Bo Morris actually, actually got even bigger because they actually drew it around Milne. Because um, after his 15 hamstrings, he wasn't going too far. I did ask the ground to make, did you actually draw the goal square and actually make it connect to the 50 so we can actually get Milne outside 50 at some stage or close to 50? But uh, no, he was he was really good. And, you know, but yeah, it is just hard. And as I said, we just. Um, we just rely on the, on the environment we try and create at the football club. I mean, you know, the boys are serious. They, they want to win and do all those sorts of things. But it's, as I said, it's just a really good social social club. Um, and, you know, everyone's going to have a good time. And, you know, and get paid. But, um, you know, the club look after the players in other ways to make sure that they're, you know, um, dressed well. We've got a good conditioning crew um, that look after the players and to make sure that, you know, and hopefully with the coaching we can provide them, we can hope them, you know, if there are some kids there that want to aspire to, to higher levels, we can help them on their journey. If there's players that just want to come and play with their mates, we also facilitate that as well. So, um, as I said, it, it's it's an active space we're in recruiting, but it's not a it's not a KPI of the club. Well, I think you're in very good hands with yourself leading from the front and the team you've got underneath you and, and after... Oh, geez, it's going to be about an 18-month pre-season by the time we roll around to round one next year. I think you'll be primed and ready to go, Guy. Thanks for joining us and going back down memory lane with your days at the Eagles and telling us what Bo Morris has been up to in the last few months, mate. Have a good day. Much appreciated, boys. Nico, let's keep moving. We've delved into all things Bo Morris Sharks on the men's side of things. But in recent years, of course... They, like many other clubs, have included a women's team, and we're lucky enough to be joined by the current co-captain of the women's side, Alan Wood. She joins us now. Hello, Alan. Hello, boys. How are you going? Very well, thank you. Very well. Now, I could start by you talking about the captaincy. I could start by talking about how you got into footy, but I'm told that you're still currently recovering from an ACL injury. How is the knee, and how is the recovery going? The knee's actually going really well. If there's a if there's ever a time to do an ACL injury, I did it at the right time, considering <laughs> the, uh, the season didn't go ahead. So um, I haven't missed any footy, um, and I'm on track for round one, which is exciting. Absolutely outstanding. And talk to us about your footballing journey prior to your knee injury. How did you get involved with, with footy and then with Bo Morris? Yeah, so in 2017, I guess that was the first year that the VAPA introduced the women's football competition. Um, a couple of us girlfriends thought we'd get down to a few training sessions to see how we go. Um, three years, a couple of injuries, and still, and still the inability to kick straight. I'm still here, so that's got to be a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> and what about the captaincy side of things? When you when you came down for your first preseason, did you have aspirations to be a leader, or did you just want to play some footy and, and kick the ball around? Uh, a bit of both. I've always kind of been a leader. I've always played other sports. I've always had um, I've always had basketball, footy. I did a lot of leading in um, I guess year twelve um, in the sporting uh, when I was in the school sports back then. Um, but yeah, it's an absolute pleasure to be the captain of the um, women's team. Um, hopefully, can hold on to that spot for the twenty twenty one season. Tell us a little bit about those first three seasons with Bo Morris. Just going through the records here, it's been. You've been awfully unlucky in a lot of ways. You've made three straight preliminary finals and not yet gone through to the granny. What's the feeling, I suppose, around the girls, around the success of the club to this day? 
Well, we're the definite we're definitely the CEOs of prelim losses. Um, we can't <laughs> seem to make it. To, we cannot seem to make it to the big band. But in 2017, um, first season for most of us, we were I guess we we're all trialing footy. We've all we've all come from different sporting backgrounds, whether that be basketball, netball, soccer. Um, we never really even expected to win a game, let alone make it to the prelim. But um, St Mary's ended up beating us back then, and they went on to win the flag. So. Um, it was yeah, it was it was hard. I think because it was a lot of our, I guess, a lot of our first um, finals losses. Um, but yeah, got going on to twenty eighteen. It was definitely uh, it was the year we got the new club room. Um, that was probably the most the, that prelim loss was definitely the most disappointing. Um, we lost to our uh, old our rivals, um, Old Haylesbury, by two points. We just didn't show up in the second half. Um, and it was yeah that. Um, I definitely think that 2021 is going to be the year of the shark. We've got, we've already started pre-season. The team morale is high. We've got um, a lot of, uh, we've got still got coach retention, which is great. Tell us about some of those rivalries. You just mentioned Old Halebury. Like I find it interesting that there's already a rivalry after just three years. You talk about the men's side of things, and they've built probably a great one with St. Pete's Mentone Tigers and a few of the other Bayside clubs. Who would you consider your greatest rivals? Um, I guess because we've changed divisions a few times, the rivals would have changed um, most seasons. But definitely from the last two seasons, um, we would definitely hold uh, Old Lentonian, um, Old Halebury, uh, Old Scotch, and even Old Brighton, actually. They've definitely been our rivals and the ones we've um, played against the most in the last uh, two seasons. You weren't part of any games at Old Brighton where they turned the lights off halfway through, were you? <laughs> oh no! Oh no! We definitely were. We definitely were. I think um, one of the games actually was—I uh, actually wasn't playing because I'd already done. I think I'd already done my knee by then. But that was—we uh, won by default. <laughs> <laughs> now uh, I've just picked up the. You've gone to your website and read the latest of the newsletters. I read the October one where there's a couple of comments from yourself. Uh, for people who listen to podcasts that Nick and I do know, I bang on about colours of footy jumpers and all those kind of things. Every opportunity I get. One quote from yourself talks about um, having a bittersweet week that you've got the arrival of your newly designed jumper, but you've also lost your co-captain, M Baker, who's gone back to South Australia. Um, first of all, what's M's influence been like on the playing group? And secondly, tell us about these newly designed jumpers you've got. Yeah, beautiful. So Emma is an absolute star. She uh, originally uh, came from uh, she's from Adelaide. So she, she came over from South Australia. She's with us for the last two seasons. She's our player that runs off the uh, off the back line, and she's an absolute um, gun both both on and off the field. She's definitely sorely missed. Uh, the new design jumpers. So we have now we have reversible jumpers. We don't. We've actually um, gone out of our way to actually buy them. So we've all got our set numbers, and we're ready to take on the twenty twenty one season. Right, reversible jumpers. A bit like the, is that so? That's yellow and the blue sash then. Yeah. So there's yellow and blue, and then. If um, in the photo, I don't, um, on the Beaumont page, behind it, I'm actually wearing a long sleeve white one. Um, that's actually on the, um, that's like the other side. Right. And your, uh, what are your ambitions for 2021? Can you get out of the prelim final rut and make a grand final? I'm hoping so. I feel like we've, we've got coach retention. The girls are really, um, we're really gelling. The team morale is high. I feel like we're a big family down at Oak Street. We've already started pre-season, pre-season so I'm hoping 2021 is our year. Alan, we clearly got you on to talk today about the Beaumaris Sharks because you're a superstar and a co-captain, but a great reason to get you on today for, my, for me anyway is the fact that you are a keen Richmond supporter. How have you found the last three to four years as a Richmond supporter? 
Um, honestly, 2017, that grand final was honestly the best day of my life. I don't think anything will ever top it. Um, my brother uh, had to actually carry me out of the MCG. <laughs> um, but for 20 years, I went to the footy and watched my team. <laughs> I know, it's tragic. Um, 20 years, I went to the footy and watched my team get annihilated by the opposition. So it's been nice the last few years to actually go to games um, and not have to sit on the edge of my uh, seat. And feel like I'm going to have a coronary. So it's, it's definitely nice to actually uh, go and enjoy the footy for once. Well, enjoy it while it's here because as soon as they fall off, I'm sure a lot of people are going to start sticking the boots back into the Richmond Footy Club, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> you and Nick. That, 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 that never changes, don't you worry. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Alan. Uh, good luck and it's great to hear that the knee's recovering well and hopefully you get a full season in 2021 and in September of next year, you're lifting up a trophy and a premiership medal around your neck. Thanks for joining us. I- no worries. Thanks for having us, boys. It's been a pleasure. Enjoy the rest of your day. That has been a bumper edition, Nick. I don't think we've done a bigger one uh, in the Club in Focus podcast. All thanks to Mechwicker, of course, been a proud partner of ours since the start of this season. Been around since 1959, a not-for-profit organisation. How well am I going saying not-for-profit anymore? I've nailed it this year. Absolutely. Nailed it after last year. You have nailed, you've come a very, very long way, Joseph. <laughs> That's growth. That's you've growth. Come a very long way. <laughs> um, what was the one thing that you took out of this podcast? It was, it was massive. I don't think we've had a bigger one. Uh, for mine, while you just go back over your notes, um, listening to Guy McKenna and listening to Jason Mifsud, their well longest serving coach in Jace, and then Guy McKenna, their most recent coach. Their philosophies around the game, um, especially the way Jace came into the club and took it to this this next level of professionalism for a side that was teetering in C-section and B-section. And to get them into A-grade is, is a phenomenal effort considering the old boys clubs that are playing in A-section at the moment. That They're around the mark being a district footy club. That was the one thing I took away from, from chatting to our guests today. What about yourself? I got great enjoyment from obviously all of our guests, but Andy Sheldrake was a real standout for mine. I was very excited heading into it, quite literally just being the first ever person <laughs> to step foot at the, on the Oak Street Oval wearing a Bowie jumper in, back in 1963 in the under-13s was absolutely amazing. And just his memory and his recollection of the moment and then going through the 1970 flag that he played in, just absolutely unbelievable. But all our guests were fantastic. It's a massive club. I don't think, Joey, that we've had a list of guests as big and as vast as those five that we've just spoken to. Yeah, no, you're quite right. We've had a couple of big additions, and you've been nervous for some of them, but this has been off the charts. I don't know if it's our last one for the year, Nico. I mean, we've still got a bit of time before 2021, but clubs have got to be quick, and they've Mm. got to get in soon. Nick at vfa.com.au, if you do want to reach out uh, before we wrap up this year and we move towards 2021 and hopefully a full season, Go and find Brian Waldron, someone who's, of course, um, linked to a club that also has blue and yellow colours like the Bo Morris Footy Club. Uh, I'll keep banging on about that, Nico, until you change the rules. And this is the year (laughs) to change rules. So make it happen and let St. Bernard's wear their old original strip. But we'll talk about that another time. This has already gone long enough and people don't need to hear us dribbling on anymore. But it's a big thanks to you, great man, and a big thanks to Mechwacare for supporting us and to Ronnie Nicholson who put this all together for us. And we caught up Mm. with him a bit earlier on. Thank you very much to everyone at the Bo Morris Footy Club. And we look forward, Nico, to doing it all again very soon. (laughs) 